0: This is your host, Casey Deshock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at alaskaconversations.com. Today, our guest is Matt Schultz. He's pastor at First Presbyterian in Anchorage. He's had his opinion pieces published on occasion in ADN, and our topic is empathy and budgeting. Matt, welcome to Alaska Conversations. Thanks so much for having me. Matt, you've written a few pieces for ADN, but we're really focusing on two you've written in the last year or so, and you can go to alaskaconversations.com, where we'll have a link to the two articles if you want to read them in their entirety. The first piece was titled, In Budgets and in Life, Let's Define Ourselves by Empathy and Compassion. So let's define our terms here a bit, Matt. When you say empathy or compassion, what do you mean by that?
1: Well, I should start with the uh, the, the caution that just because I wrote something doesn't mean that I remember it. My, my memory is notoriously terrible. Uh, but I did try to look it over recently. Empathy and compassion are closely related, but not the same thing. Empathy typically means that you feel things that other people feel. So, if you see someone injured on the side of the road, you don't simply say, "Ah, oh, too bad," but you, you feel a pain in your heart. It's not a physical sensation, of course, but you you have this emotional connection to that person. It's different than sympathy, where you just kind of feel bad for them. And empathy, uh, with empathy, you actually feel an emotion that is connected to that person that's why compassion is so closely related the word compassion if you take it apart you know into the etymology and its component parts it really means suffer with if you have compassion for someone it's not good enough to view them from a distance and say oh that poor sucker yet yeah, you actually have to enter into that place of suffering with them It's a huge part of the Christian tradition of of how we view the incarnation this this time of year. We're talking about that a lot with Christmas time,
0: Um, you know, that that we believe that suffering with
1: people who are in pain is an essential part of our ethical framework.
0: Well, and it was it's this is just by serendipity or however you want to want to call it that we just had the Supreme Court ruled that they were not going to hear a case and so it's going to have implications for homelessness but when you're talking about empathy what you're really talking about is you're walking down the street as you described it and you you can actually feel a piece of what perhaps the the homeless person is feeling or if you you see a single mother suffering it's not just that you're looking at them and saying okay i understand that they're going through pain but it's that you feel a little piece of their pain alongside them right exactly and so in the in the article to review it you you wrote through this lens as we discuss our state budget emotion isn't necessary as a means it is in and of itself the end we create this budget in order to create a way forward that is defined by empathy and compassion So when I'm thinking about empathy and compassion and using your definition of it, one of the things that um, I'm a little bit unclear on, I'd like to see what you have to say about it, is empathy, when I'm walking down the street and I see something that, that would be cause for empathy, there's a difference between myself feeling empathy and what we as a group or as a collective municipal, borough, state, what we would feel collectively Do you think that there's any difference between the two? Um,
1: I don't think there should be. I think there often is. And I think that comes from a good spot within people's hearts. I think it's a good motivation that leads to some bad decisions. And what I mean by that is I think Republicans and Democrats alike want to help people. And we just often will disagree on the, the methods by which we do that. Um, and regardless of faith tradition, I think all faith traditions and people with no faith tradition, I think there is usually this gut reaction of wanting to help people. But disagreements tend to come with how. With One of the, the things that is a hurdle nowadays to that, that type of helping is people get very hesitant when it comes to saying that the government should play a role in helping others and what should that role be. So from an ethical framework, the the way I view that is we all agree that an individual should help another individual. And we're held accountable, you know, we're responsible to do that. Similarly, we would probably all say that I'm responsible for the actions of my family, like my nuclear family of five, if we are playing loud music all night long and keeping the neighbors awake well i'm responsible for that ethical choice of my group all of us are we're responsible for having done that act as a group uh your small business if you're you know dumping your trash as a small business into the community playground well your small business even though it's not an individual there's still a community ethic that you're responsible for i believe the same is true of government we are held accountable even though it's a collective group we're held accountable for the ethical
0: actions or lack of actions that we take. So when when we're looking at, at the community, and one thing that's very important that you touch on is that, and I absolutely agree, that regardless of, of somebody's political persuasion or their faith or et cetera, the majority, where I come from, the majority of people do intend to do good. That doesn't mean that the outcome is going to be good, but they do intend to do good but yeah being being more specific on the on the individual when i when I go down or when I have my family of five and I have a responsibility, um, that seems to be more direct, but perhaps if a neighborhood uh, gets together, then what my concern would be would be that as we as we do try to feel the empathy and we do try to do something and we we use empathy to guide us that we, we stop focusing necessarily on the outcomes and we spend a little bit more time focusing on uh, the means or the process. So we, we spend a lot of time focusing on how to help the homeless. or we it, And it, this doesn't have to be just about homeless. It can easily be about education, the elderly, how we take care of, of everybody. And all of those are different um, and, and what they cause reaction in us. But when we're looking at the outcome, if we use empathy as a guide, occasionally it seems like it would be able to cloud our judgment and we're not able to look and say, well, even though, or even though we're acting at empathy, perhaps this isn't the right, the right method.
1: Well, I think yeah, that depends on how you're saying it's not the right method. Um, if it leads to an outcome that is more harm than good, well, then empathy would
0: lead us to stop that strategy also. So um, one one of the things, I think where somebody would push back on, on that particular um, claim would be there is a, there's a good argument um, to be made that the more that we, the more, and I'm just going to use the homelessness here, but then I'll, I'll move away from homel- homelessness and try to touch on some other topics. But the more that we attempt to help the more we make life on the streets tolerable or the more the more that we are essentially subsidizing the behavior if you will just to use the words i'm not saying that we're subsidizing the behavior but just to use that language because we subsidize that behavior we get more of it and if we were to tax that behavior we would get less of it um so
1: sure. so but, i i understand Argument, and I agree with you that if that could be shown to be true, then I agree we should change our policies to stop that from happening. Because, again, being motivated by empathy, what we want is to have fewer people living in a state of homelessness. And if we're creating a policy that creates more homelessness, then empathy would guide us to say, well, let's stop that policy. Currently, our policies and our economic ways of being in this country and all of our laws create homelessness at a predictable rate that's something that we are creating through what we do therefore it's incumbent upon us to change it so that that number reduces
0: now when we're when we're creating it we're creating it through uh, regulations that are that are limiting housing options or making it difficult for some some individuals to participate in the labor force or uh, where where do you think that is one of the areas where we be oh, creating it lots and lots
1: of ways you you named one uh the the fact that housing right now is, is unaffordable to so many people that's a big thing the fact that so many people are even though the unemployment number looks good on the surface the fact that so many people are employed in part-time jobs or jobs that are called minimum wage which is far below the poverty level or the ability to have housing um Two of the common sources, although not the only sources of homelessness, would be mental illness and addiction. Well, we have a system in which people don't have options frequently when they're struggling with those illnesses. And so we push people out into the street in that way as well. So there are many, many different ways that our society creates the problem of homelessness and pushes people into it. So we need to reduce those tabs into homelessness and increase the paths out of homelessness. And then in the meantime, and here's a big part, we haven't touched that yet. In the meantime, the way we treat the people who are homeless has to be guided by empathy as well. Uh, we can't ever get to zero, probably. But we can certainly make homelessness brief and rare and one time only. And in that brief period of time when people are experiencing homelessness, we can make sure that they're treated with, with love and kindness.
0: Well, I I am going I'm going to disagree just a tiny bit on on one of those uh, on one point. But first, I want to say that it is I think it is important for us to look at when you're walking and you're seeing some sort of wrong, regardless of where you're at uh, politically or or how you how you're thinking about something. Um, and even if you want different approaches to the problem, we should have empathy because there are situations and people shouldn't overlook this. There are situations, especially when you look at mental health in the homelessness. Uh, some people will call it a crisis or maybe it's just an uptick. but we are taking some people that decades ago may have been institutionalized. We are moving them outside of the institutions they may have family support but at some point that family either passes away or leaves and they're left without the support group and that's where as a community especially when we're looking at mental health issues that's where as a community we really do need to come together and identify those and to make sure that we're taking care of that level or that those specific cases because though they are in a situation of no fault of their own and they don't have a support group and that's where either a community or a church church group comes together. Where I think that we get a where I think that some people will start to fail in the empathy with just the individual walking down the street is that when they're walking down the street, we don't tend to see the the women and with the single mom with the child that's homeless or the one person that has fallen on bad luck and had a a health crisis that put him into homelessness. I think that in our face, and it's because you're not, because the people are not in shelters, et cetera, but what we see, what our eyes are telling us is that a preponderance of the individuals on the street are battling with substance abuse. And it seems to be something in an area where people have less empathy
1: oh i agree that is an area where people have less empathy and i also agree that tends to be um i I agree with you when you say that we see one particular type of homelessness in the street there's one very visible type and that's not necessarily representative of the broader population of people who are experiencing homelessness there's a wide range of Types of people, for lack of a better phrase, um, many of the homeless people that we serve here in our church are, you know, they their family units that are employed, and they're trying their best to to, to find stable grounding. Um, so yeah, the the what you see on the street corners when there are people holding signs, some of which are intended to be humorous, uh, that that's one face of homelessness, but it's not really the whole picture. And I also fully agree with you that people tend to have less empathy for people who are addicted to various substances. And I think that's a challenge um, for our society to grow beyond that, because we must have empathy for people who are struggling with addiction.
0: Well, and, and another thing that people should keep in mind is that when when somebody is, is addicted, generally, I would say for, for those that are that are struggling with uh, substance abuse generally they're not um they're not consciously or waking up every day and saying you know I I really hope that I can destroy my life with uh, a little bit more opioid use it has gotten to a point right. and now if you're homeless it's very hard to tell whether or not the homelessness causes increased drug abuse or whether you're using more drugs now that you're homeless and you have less responsibilities the correlation causation its right. all screwed up. And so uh, it is an area where we can improve. Yeah. Now you wrapped up that particular article with he being the governor, but we'll remove him from it. Claims that his intention was not to inflict harm, but to force Alaskans to identify the programs they felt were most essential. But the Alaskan people didn't communicate what we value. We communicated who we value. We value the elderly we value the young, we value the vulnerable. This isn't a conversation about what we can afford, it is a conversation about who we choose to be. Alaskans, please choose to be a people of compassion. Now, in this particular case, moving away from the homelessness, but we have an entire group, an entire swath of people that are quite vulnerable. Children need to be educated, the elderly need to be taken care of, and each one of these are different cases. And so, at the end of the day, we only have so many dollars and we're going to have to choose where the dollars go. Do you think that choosing where the dollars go and cutting some funding to some things and increasing funding, is that a reflection of our empathy or is, or is it just the reality of of budgets and, and government?
1: It, it is a function of budget and government and it's not just cutting budget, it's which budgets we cut. That's where it becomes a reflection of our empathy. Um, If I have 10 sandwiches and there are five people standing there, uh, let me, sorry, I got that backwards. If I have five sandwiches and there are 10 people standing there and I give all the sandwiches to the person that's already full and has money to buy his own sandwiches, well, that didn't show much empathy to the, the three people in the group that are hungry and starving and have no meat. Similarly, with the last year's budget, if we have X number of billions of dollars and we give them to one institution but not another, then we're going to have to look at what did that say about us? Did we take money away from education and give it to some type of large corporation? If so, we have to demonstrate what that's going to do to people. How is that going to affect people? Now, many conservatives will say that's going to help in the long run. It's going to create jobs which will allow people to escape homelessness. If that's your motivation for doing it, then I love you, and I I respect your hope. I, I think our facts are different. I don't see that that's ever worked. However, if you're saying that you're truly wanting to give tax breaks to the oil corporations because you think it will lift people out of poverty, then I think you've got a real ethical foundation that ought to be respected. I think you're incorrect, but it's 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 a beginning point of respect that we can
0: start with. well, if if we're talking oil taxes, we we'd go on to another we'd go on for another two or or three hours. but um, when when we're looking at at the budgets, now you can be ran by empathy or when you're making these actual the the real world decisions, there, there's a piece in. If we're talking about the elderly, there's a piece of it that says, uh, maybe they should take care of themselves. Maybe we don't need social security. Maybe we don't need to take care of the elderly. Now, from an empathy standpoint or from compassion, you may say, well, they're vulnerable and we need to take care of them. The way that I see this is a little bit different, and I don't know if it's any more or less ethical, but I think it results in the same thing. When I look at some as our senior citizens. I believe that as they age, if they need to be taken care of more and more and we don't take care of them as a, as a society, what we're doing is we're removing more than likely their middle-aged children, 40s or 50s, in their most productive years that can be adding to the economy, we're removing them from the workforce and and having them take care of their parents. Now, that may sound like a very scientific or a, a, a very cold way to look at it, but the at the end of the day, we do need to be efficient with our dollars. So the elderly, I would treat differently than education or homelessness. So taking care of the elderly is a social good because it frees up some of our more productive labor to pursue other things inside of our economy. When we look at education. Uh, Yep.
1: Sorry to interrupt, but I I want to hit on something that you just said that I think is really important to point out. Uh, And I, I want to make sure that I understood correctly. It sounded as if you were using as your final metric for whether a choice was proper or not. Your final metric seemed to be contribution to the economy. Because it was detracting from the middle-aged people's ability to contribute to the economy, uh, that, that made it a bad strategy. because so it took away that money-generating ability. I have a very different framework. I believe we start with the fact that we need to take care of the elderly, regardless of what it does financially. And then after the fact, we say, all right, how do we make this work financially? And our final metric for whether it was good or not is not people's ability to contribute into the economy. My final metric is how well have we cared for others?
0: So what what I would say in response to that is I don't know if there's so much of a difference in what we're saying. I think it's just a different framework because um, if, we, if we're if we taking care of the elderly, yes, I do think that your ability to co- uh, contribute into the economy is an important metric. But uh, when I'm talking about somebody, if we're taking care of the elderly and we're removing people from the economy and forcing them into – and not forcing them, but through – Uh, The way that we structure our government, we're saying, okay, you need to now move away from what you're doing and take care of the elderly. That is a somehow we have to take care of the elderly. But the most efficient way to do that uh, would be to take, take care of our elderly through socially where it's a small cost on everybody. Instead of a large cost on a few highly productive people, or you know they may even be me- medium productive. But yes, we I think we do have a difference in the way that we look at uh, how we make a decision when we're looking at governments. That doesn't the economic piece of it doesn't motivate me when I'm walking down the street, but when I'm looking at making policy, then I move away from what your definition of ethics necessary or you know specifically would be and I start saying, okay, we need to look at this through a different lens than just the empathy. And that's where I was alluding to earlier that I do think that there may be a difference between us as a collective and us as an individual.
1: Well, I I agree. Yeah, there are different ways. Uh, And I also agree that we always have to keep an eye on finances. Obviously, that's that's how we're going to accomplish our goals in many ways. But let me then ask you, what is the role, in your opinion, what is the role of ethics in our governmental
0: decisions? Well, that's going to be a, diff- a difficult um, a difficult, thing to answer because I think us individually, the way that we look at our ethics and us collectively, the way that we look at our ethics are going to be different. When I look at our role collectively, it is to defend our individual, and, and I do mean that by individual, our individual rights to do and see as do as we see uh, fit within that community within a, a set of social norms. So some people would call that you know protecting your liberty or or whatever it is that you want to call it. But we come to the individual comes together in a collective. If you're in Anchorage, you come together in a collective, and the reason you live in Anchorage is because you see a benefit. From living in Anchorage, and from meeting the social norms of, of, the grou- of the group. Now, if at some point that collective becomes too onerous for you to live in, and then you you move locations or you decide that you no longer want to be part of that group. So from from the the role of ethics in the government is to protect the individual uh, the individual's ability to do and do and act as they see fit within the community.
1: Hmm.
0: Okay. And, and that, that, that's re- an way to- go ahead on that one.
1: Oh, I just said, that's an interesting way to frame it. Well, I, I-, I would say that it goes further than that. I don't think that ethics, is limited to saying allow the individual to make as many choices as possible. I think that's a part of it. Individual responsibility, individual choice, that's always a big part of it. But as a community, we also function. There, there, there's a lot of mismaking in the United States, and particularly in our historical uh, tales that we tell uh, of the rugged individualists. And a lot of Alaskans have bought into this, but it's largely false. It's largely false. Most of what has happened throughout our national and world history is communities doing things together and contributing together and benefiting together. And so there, there's always that give and take between, okay, we're going to allow individuals to opt out of certain things, but we, we have to recognize that our community actions are far more impactful and we're responsible to make sure that those community actions are beneficial to as many people as
0: possible. I agree with that. And one thing, I I love you using the word myth because every place has their myth. Alaska has its myth. I think uh, one thing that we're doing right now is redefining Alaska's myth um, from a state perspective. So we've had one way that we've looked at the state uh, from pre-statehood to statehood. And then we had uh, a way that we looked at the state uh, post-taps until this most recent oil crash and production declines. And now we're going to have to look and say, okay, what, what is Alaska going to be going into the future? Because we have some, we define ourselves one way right now, and I'm not so sure that we have all of the resources that we need to, in order to continue the myth that we currently have. And it is largely, it is largely a myth because not not everybody is is living up to not everybody's out uh, doing subsistence and living off of the grid and and far away from their neighbor. That's not really how we're structured right right but it's a it's a good transition over to the to the budget piece because now now we're moving to where where we're moving beans around and we're, we're starting to say okay we do understand that we have a limited amount of resources we do understand that if we want to take care of the elderly that has to come at the cost of something else unless unless we and that's, we're producing new revenues of which there's only so many new revenues at some point are all of the revenues that we can possibly generate are going to be exp- a, a, being used. And then we have to make a decision. So in, in your second piece, which was titled government shouldn't be a business. It's about people, not profits. And I absolutely agree. You can't run a government like a business because it, it's not as responsive. It just doesn't work that way. But whether we have a surplus or a deficit, we are still fellow Alaskans with the shared goal of establishing establishing justice and promoting the general welfare. Whether or not it's profitable, we're all in this together. So this is this is where, um, at the end of the day, we have to have enough money to pay for all of the programs that we want to pursue. So, Alaska, I don't necessarily believe that we're being unethical or, or doing something doing something that maybe we shouldn't be proud of, but there is a, there is a bottom line to government. And if you take Anchorage, for example, if Anchorage really wanted to end homelessness, we could take Kincaid park, for example, and build nothing but, but uh, homeless shelters. Now that's completely hypothetical, but there are the resources to do that if that's what we wanted to, but it would come at great cost. So, we are going to have to decide what, um, where where we believe the role of government is, and I think that we do have to keep in mind the bottom line for government.
1: Yeah, I agree with all that. We we have to keep the bottom line in mind. We there's only so much government can do. Um, the the difficulty always comes in that nuance where we say, okay, there's only so much we can do, so let's do so much. Um, I personally believe that. Alaska as a system is not doing enough to fund the proven solutions to end homelessness. Uh, We we know how to reduce homelessness drastically, drastically, but it costs money. And people are, are not willing to say, we'll pay, for example, an income tax, or for example, we'll reduce the PFD, or we'll reduce the oil tax credits, any number of revenue streams we might be trying to think about not willing to pay the price to effectively address the issue. And that could go for education as well. And senior care, you name it. Um, These things all cost money. Um, The question is not, this this is true for conservatives and liberals alike. The question is not, should we pay for government functions? The question has always been which government functions should be paid for. Whenever conservatives get elected to office on the, uh, campaign promises of you know cutting budget and reducing spending—it kind of makes me chuckle because historically that hasn't been their track record. <laughs> you know, uh, they they like to spend just as much as we do. It's just they spend it on different things. That's where the that's where the, where the real questions come, and I think that's where we expose our own ethical preferences.
0: Well, you so you touch on education. We can we can just. You know, dabble into education just a little bit. Uh, I don't think anybody would make the argument that that Alaska as a as a system is underspending on on education. We are we are spending a significant amount of money on education, and um, I don't think people are very happy with the results that they're getting. But I'm I'm not so sure. I haven't gone to the other forty nine states uh, lately talking about education one thing that i think we get wrong is i'm not so sure that anybody's happy with their with their public education system and i don't mean that it's a bad system or a good system i just mean that oftentimes we say well alaska's spending the most on education in the entire country and we're having poor results but we forget we forget to take into account that a lot of states are dissatisfied with their public education system and we have a different set of problems than other states may you know it, it's going to be substantially different if you're educating uh, children in a rural school district than if you're in a wealthy suburb in Massachusetts and and we've got to control for those variables but uh, overall I would say right. that we are spending quite a bit on education and I think that people would probably be correct to, to expect to have results that they're satisfied with and I'm not sure that people are very satisfied with the results.
1: Oh, I agree. Yeah. In fact, I don't think I know of a single person in any of our 50 states that says, hooray, public education is perfect. You know, every single system has problems. Every single system could be better. Every single system has fat that could be trimmed. However, I personally, on my own belly, have fat that could be trimmed. But the best way to trim it is not just by slashing it. We need to go about it in a way that's careful and does not destroy the overall system. Same is true of education. If you say here's, you have, you know, a billion dollars education budget for next year. Oh, but now it's only half that. Well, that doesn't reduce, that doesn't lead to smarter spending. That just collapses the system. Same as if I said my belly's too fat, I'm just going to cut it off with a machete. That's not how
0: you make reductions. Well, and, and one of, one of the areas, I think that there's a little bit of, uh, People are getting more and more dissatisfied. Is that when it comes to our education system, people realize that that we're that we're not meeting the outcomes that we that we would like to have. And the argument always comes back to, well, we need to spend a little bit more. We need to we need to invest here. We need to invest here. And there's a a group of people that that doesn't believe that that's the case and I'm not so sure that they ever get they ever get hurt they they never get those attempts tried hey if we did cut the budget if we did make schools be more efficient if we did um, introduce competition through increased charter schools etc they may not work but I think that there's a group of people that's saying at this point we don't have much to lose in trying it and I don't think that it's going to be that impactful on the children. They're going to be able to adapt and they're still going to get education. So that's one of the, that's one of the problems is I'm not sure that we're being creative enough when we start looking at education budgets.
1: Yeah, I, I would always say the more creativity the better uh, provided uh, it doesn't come at the expense of, of students in some way, shape or form. You said the students will be fine and that's, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, charter schools, for example, there are ways to do it, which are wonderful and allow for creativity and different methods of education and learners with different learning styles. You can do a lot of wonderful things with that. Conversely, it could also become a pretty nasty system that is benefiting the rich at the expense of the poor, where, you know, the wealthier taxpayers are going to one place and those who can't afford a home and don't pay property tax, they get kind of clustered away into public schools that are underfunded.
0: Well, the the charter schools are- the greater
1: creativity, that's great. Go ahead.
0: Well, yeah, so the charter schools still, this is one of the things I think, uh, I I think it's funny when conservatives are talking about this because uh, they get this wrong a lot. Charter schools are not privatized schools. They're still public schools it's just they're they're yeah. largely deregulated if you will if you want to call it that or they're independent of uh, independent of an entire system you know school system so they've come together and say all right we want to be the anchorage stem academy we're still going to take in the exact number of per pupil dollars from the state it is a public school and usually the enrollment is by lottery which would control for which would control for some of the the rich poor piece because it is important when we're looking at education to remember that uh, having some diversity inside of the classroom and I don't mean uh, by race or any of that but income diversity really does really does matter and there's a there's a great argument that's been made that in many ways when it comes to education a uh, hundred years ago when people didn't have the same transportation capabilities that you had the the guy with 160 IQ Marion the girl with 100 IQ or vice versa the girl with 160 IQ Marion the the guy with 100 IQ and they stayed largely in the same communities but now with the ease of transportation you're getting more and more selective schooling and you're getting communities that are separate from the public at large and that's something that we that we definitely need to avoid. So any sort of charter school system needs to be set up with a lottery or some other way to distribute uh, the attendance, I believe.
1: Yeah. And and I think there's a lot of nuance to that, but in broad terms, we would agree. I would say there are some things that even though you say it's a lottery, a lottery doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be fair and open. Uh, That makes it random, but that's not the same as uh, just. Uh, one example would be, um, if a student goes to a charter school, but that school does not have bus transportation available. Well, if that were my family, we could handle that. I have a job that's very flexible in its schedule, and so I can just drive them there, pick them up. If I choose to, I could leave early, pick them up at, at you know, when school ends in the afternoon, and then work from home if I need to. I have that flexibility, and I own a vehicle. And we happen to be a two vehicle family, so my wife can go about her work and not be impacted by it. Other families do not have that luxury of having, I mean, they punch in at a certain time and punch out at a certain time. And the only way that kid gets to school is by the bus. Uh, the, that, that's it. That's the only option. So just because it's a lottery doesn't mean it's economically fair, but uh, in the broad strokes, we agree. We want to work towards justice.
0: Well, and, and that just, it just highlighted to me some of the earlier conversation when we were talking about empathy. Um, I have three young kids and I am a little bit, I'm older. I was not, didn't have children when I was a teenager. I did grow up in a family like that. Um, And it, it is unbelievable for me to look back and look at how my family handled that, where we entered having children with some savings and the ability to, you know, missing one paycheck wasn't going to be the case of, we're losing a car or losing a job, etc. Um, and and there are a huge swath of people where the the margin of error in life is extremely extremely low. And I do think that we need to keep that that situation in mind. And Employers should keep that in mind too. Yeah. It's very hard to do if you don't have children or if or if you've never been in a situation where you have a sick child, you have no other way to get to work. And there's oftentimes. You have people that are penalized for, for that, and they do have to be penalized, but it, it is an area for increased empathy for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the sad truth is most Americans are one bad month away from homelessness.
0: And and I like to believe that many people have some sort of support system that would help them through help them through a situation like that, but I do not have any evidence to say what percentage of people could lean on their family in a situation like that. It may be far lower than what I'm giving it credit for. I'm, I'm open to, to that being the case. Yeah. and
1: I, I believe, and I'd, I'd want you to fact check me on this, but I'm pretty sure it's the case that the most common cause of homelessness in the United States is medical bills. And the debt that they create. Um, again, take that with a grain of salt. I might be inaccurate in that statistic, but I think
0: it's true. Well, and the the medical the medical system again, kind of like oil taxes. We could go into that for hours and hours and hours. the The system has major problems. It is causing people to go into definitely causing people to go into poverty. I I do think that some of our regulations may be causing that, but I don't know. I don't know enough about specifically the medical industry. I know that our first, our first child that we had, they billed us $153,000 for that child. We, at the time I was in the military, we we ended up paying like $600. Who knows how much the hospital ended up getting? Did they take some of those, some of that money and then refer to it as, well, this was actually a loss to avoid paying taxes. There's all sorts of problems with the medical industry that I got. I'll just leave to the side. There's, it's, it's kind of a mess right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree with <laughs> that.
0: You you wrapped up that second article with a better way to look at it, may be to say we need to run the government like a family and this is the area where uh, and I'm just I'm saying this out of my own passion and joy for this one. I couldn't disagree more because our government <laughs> is not uh, is not a family. A family has a finite number – a finite period of time where it's going to be alive, and then it's going to disintegrate, and uh, then we're trying the to create independence. Correct. Yes?
1: I think governments also have a finite amount of time that they're going to be alive, but good, sorry to interrupt
0: you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, specifically, but the the government's going to we, – we need to try to run the government to run in, in perpetuity. Uh, to We want the government to go on and on and on for generations and it's it's hard to say that um, it, it's hard to say that we need to look at our citizens, et cetera, as the family, and that we need to just because this group is is failing a little bit, we need to move resources over here because oftentimes the group that's in that's struggling, they're struggling for a period of time. So, young, if you're in your early twenties. You may be working a minimum wage job. You may may be working a very low wage job, and you're just getting the feet under you. You're underemployed, but you have to look at your entire life's earning potential, and most Americans have an extremely high life earning potential. So over the long run, they're going to be making, at some point, they're going to be in the top 20%. Uh, Not everybody but a, but I still believe... Wait, wait. Can you say that again for me, please? I'm not sure I
1: followed that last part about over the long run they'll be in the top 20%. Could you re- restate that for me,
0: please? Yes. And I'm I'm not talking about wealth here. I'm talking about income generation. A significant number of people over the long run of their life, if you look at a life as a long run, in their 40s somewhere, they're going to have a year where they're making in the top 20% of income among all Americans. Now that's not everybody, but a significant number. I'm not of sure. I understand how that's
1: that, that mathematically possible that everybody can be in the top 20%. No, I not, would think that 80% of people would not be in the top
0: 20%. <laughs> no, no. It's, so it, it's the, so what I'm talking about is composition. So you, you have a hundred people and at some point out of those hundred people, 20 of them will retire, going to social security and have low income, The bottom twenty percent. Okay, and then through them passing away, let's say the you know the high earners they pass away, new people move into the market. At some point, if you look at somebody's life, their income in a given year, more likely than not, is going to be in the top twenty percent at some point. Now you're going to move into the top twenty percent, and when you're in your forties, you may think, and this is kind of a problem for retirement planning but you may think that that's going to go on forever but those 5 or 10 years where you're making in the top 20% they're going to go away there's a finite a finite time and your your productivity is going to go down you're going to want to go into retirement spend time with your grandchildren and then you move into the bottom and the next generation steps up now not everybody makes that but the but there is there's is a significant number of people that move in and out through the top 20% over the course of their life. Okay,
1: sure. A lot of people do move in and out, but I think for the most part on the whole, you're you're born into situations that tend to uh, predict what your earnings are going to be over your life. Again, going back to the American myth of someone being born with absolutely nothing and then becoming a billionaire, That's a myth, and whatever truth it may have been based on in the past has been reduced greatly. Um, You can predict a person's earnings by their childhood zip code more often than you can by their IQ or their gumption. And so, what we when I say we want to look at the government or the nation as a family, as opposed to a business, obviously that's a metaphor, so it's going to be sticky and it's going to cause problems. What I mean by that though is we need to love the other and take our actions. Choose our actions carefully that take into account the impacts and the opportunities that will be presented to others in the long run as well. With a business, all you're going to look at at the end of the day is what's your bottom line? How much money was in? How much money is out? What's our investment for, for our future earnings? And I'm saying, no, that's not the metric by which we measure our success as a people. We measure our success by how well have we cared for one another, just like in a family, as opposed to how much money do we have in the bank?
0: Well, I think this is where where one side may may come back and say, well, just because just because we're investing or, or caring for <clears throat> for somebody, you know, they may make the argument uh, that Social Security, for example, I'm I'm just going to use this one that Social Security leads to more problems than good. Now, I've I've tried to do some some numbers. People will there will be a group of people that will hate me for saying this, but trying to do some numbers on social security i think it's a pretty good return for for our investment um, that's uh, it's probably not going to last forever but back more specifically in alaska just just because we're spending money on something doesn't mean that we're necessarily caring for for somebody though and i think that you agree with that but some, some spending is is done and is misguided even though it's got, we, we have the right intent or our hearts in the right place, but it's, it's causing more problems than perhaps it it's fixing.
1: I would agree that in some cases that happens. Yeah.
0: And so with the, with the, the government uh, with this government as a family, removing it from the family, because you, you've addressed that, okay, there are some, you know, it's not in apples to apples, but this goes back to the when we're actually looking at the the beans and we're putting them into the cups, and our current government is going to have to do this going into the future. There's only so many beans, and so let's say that we want to take care of homelessness and we want to take care of the elderly and we want to continue to fund uh, health care for the most vulnerable and we're going to take care of, uh, et cetera, et cetera. At some point, somebody on the margin is going to be, we're going to have to cut them out. And that person at the margin it very well could be somebody that's making $60,000 a year or $65,000 a year, looked at independently, they're doing okay. But in the big scheme of things, I think that they're just as deserving of the empathy as somebody that's doing worse. Um, and so that becomes, that, that certainly becomes a problem because somewhere we will have to draw the line and say, we don't have any money to assist here.
1: Well, sure. Yeah. We, we don't have infinity dollars to give away. So like like I said before, then when we have two options, uh, th- there are two ways in the, the most recent budget crisis that we expressed our ethics then. and. We have another budget crisis probably on the way, right? But in the most recent one, it was expressed in two ways. Number one, where do we put those beans that we currently have? And number two, what is our willingness to go out and get more beans? And in both of those choices, the the policies that we support are expressing the, the, the internal Ethic. Whether we wanted it to or not, it was certainly expressing it. And if you were to put forth a budget that says, we are going to maintain program A, but drastically slash program B. You're not just saying, oh, well, well it's just the number of beans that we have. No, you're, you're making an ethical choice. As I believe Martin Luther King Jr. said, a budget is a moral document. And where you put those beans is an expression of your morals and your ethics. And in the case of this most recent one that Governor Dunleavy put forward, in my opinion, it missed the mark terribly and was a horribly unethical document.
0: Well, I think that the, the legislature, et cetera, reminded him of, of some of the shortfalls there. I think that a lot of the community reminded him of some of those shortfalls. Uh, and he's, he's, yeah. made, he's made an adjustment. This one's going to be a flat. This one's going to be a completely flat budget. Uh, that's at least that's what I'm reading. I haven't read into it at all, but um,
1: I am not. Yeah, I haven't read this new budget yet either, so I'm not. I can't make any claims on
0: that one. Yeah, they're, so they're they're trying to say it's going to be a flat budget, and we're going to fund the PFD. We're going to do these. But one thing that you that you touch on there that is also important is that when we're when we're using a a budget as a ethical or a moral document. One of the problems I have is that uh, occasionally, I think empathy can lead to empathy, compassion, morality, etc. In in these situations, could lead to uh, problems. So, if if uh, if I have my child and I am feeling empathy for my child being bullied, and and I'm sure that my empathy is misplaced here, you can tell me where I'm wrong here, but. Uh, or or my child has some sort of problem there there is a big piece of me that wants to say i feel what you're feeling and here's the reaction but there's a a piece to being a government or a parent or or somebody that's in charge a, a business owner etc where the empathy needs to be removed a little bit and the yeah and, and being able to just be rational and say look I'm sorry that this is happening but this is what needs to happen and this is going to be this is the only outcome that we can see i think that that's an important thing to remember and it's going to have to happen as we lose revenue in the future i
1: yeah i agree that's an important balance um uh in many different uh ways you know as a pastor for example i'm part of my work is i have to have a great deal of empathy but i also have to balance that with uh well it's usually called uh, self-differentiation to say even though i feel your pain And I care about what you're going through. I also have to understand that you and I are different people. And even though I'm a part of this system, uh, I also have individuality. There's, There's a balance there, to be sure. And I would say that's absolutely true of government as well. We want to have the empathy, but we also need to have the ability to say we can help up to this point. And at that point, we're no longer able to help. And sometimes after this point, we say it's no longer appropriate. To be providing help, like you said, there's a certain income level at which we'll say, okay, you no longer require assistance. That's fine. Uh, The question again, it's not a question of should we eventually stop providing that public assistance. If we're looking at you know uh, some type of like SNAP program for groceries, of course we all agree that eventually we should cut off those benefits. If if you know Jeff Bezos came in and said, I would like to sign up for a food stamps program, please, we would say, no, get out of here, you're a billionaire. The question comes. Uh, becomes where do we draw that line? Are you going to draw the line at someone who's employed with a minimum wage job? I'm sorry. It's impossible to live in this country on a minimum wage job. So if someone comes in and they're full-time employed earning the minimum wage, I believe we should absolutely give them all the free groceries they need.
0: Well, and that's, I I don't have any, any data right in front of me, but there, there is, it, it is easy one to say the minimum wage and there are people that are working on the minimum wage, but primarily Not all, you know, nothing is universal, but primarily minimum wage jobs are are held by younger entry-level folks that are eventually going to move into, um, that are eventually going to move away from those programs. So we kind of take care of it in in that way because many programs are designed to be short-lived. I think where people get most worried is when you have, when you advocate for or make possible people to not seek a way out of poverty, and and that really, that really does happen. I mean that is a, a reality. I'm not so sure that Alaska is necessarily doing it. You I you to repeat that because I lost your signal for just a second. Oh no problem. So you there are some programs that are you know so when you're looking at the. Minimum wage, most of the people that are working for minimum wage, I don't have any statistics in front of me. I can't tell you a a number, but most of the people that are working for minimum wage are younger entry-level workers or people that are entering the workforce for the first time, and their productivity is going to increase, their wages are going to increase, and over the long run, they will probably at some point hit the 20% mark, or, you know, be in the top 20%. That is the, the beauty of our system. And that's the faith that I have in our system. Now that is not all the way across the board. That's not going to happen for everybody, but generally that's what's going to happen. And so at the people kind of self-regulate, you know, you use assistance when you need it. And at some point you grow your income to the point where you can move away from using that assistance where people get, uh, I think where people get a little bit more concerned is when you make Poverty almost a little, almost comfortable, and I don't mean that it's, that it's comfortable like what we would think sitting back on a, on a couch, but where, if you want to get yourself out of poverty, it is going to be, a significant, investment, personally that you're going to have to make, and, it is we if we look at somebody that's going from from uh, you know middle class to being in the top 1%, they're going to have to significantly change their lives and what they do. And it's not something that we all want to do. If you're looking at the poorest among us, for them to change their lives, is uh, it's scary. It's, their entire group of people that they may be around, they're going to have to leave. It's just like uh, moving from a rural community into a city. We know that moving from a rural community into a city will increase your chances of of income because there's, there's more industry in a city. However, and so some people would say, I don't know why we're, why are we so concerned about these people that live in rural America? Why don't they just move to the city and get a job? Well, moving to the city and getting a job is not something that's particularly attractive to them. And so their, their sphere of possibilities is not something that they, that's moving to the city is not something that they, Themselves are considering. I hope that I'm not losing you on this, but um, so when no, when- you're not.
1: But I think you are touching on a certain uh, uh, again one of our great American myths in in that you're you're touching a lot on the the myth of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps um, and saying that there are some people that perhaps are made to be too comfortable in poverty, and that it's a question of certain choices they're making. Once in a while, that's true. I mean, there are people that that make bad choices and there are people in the world that are lazy. But, again, in my line of work, I am in conversation with poor people and poor families on a daily basis. And I've not yet met the lazy one. I've not yet met the one that says, no, I'm comfortable here. I'm good enough. I enjoy food stamps. I really love going to Fred Meyer and pulling out the WIC card and having everybody in line stare at me. I really love telling my kids I can't buy them new shoes. They have to go to school with cold feet. Not yet met that person. And that myth is out there. It gets talked about a lot every time, every year when it's time to pay for these social programs that keep people fed and housed and clothed. People say, yeah, what about the welfare queen sitting at home just, you know, eating candy and watching TV? And I've not yet met that person. And if they're out there, they're the vast vast minority amongst the majority of people who are trying their best, working really hard and trying to get by and just wanting to feed their kids and work towards something better.
0: So, And let me let me clarify with just one more one more uh, kind of thought experiment on this and then we will wrap up, Matt. I appreciate all the time, but let me clarify and I'll get your response to this a better way to say what i just said uh maybe even a less offensive way to say what i said would be if you look at if you look at an 18 or a 19 year old child 18 or 19 year old child is living with their parents and they're living in the basement and the parents are paying for uh paying for all of these different utilities they're paying for their cell phone they're paying for their internet they're paying for new clothes they're etc that that Eighteen or nineteen year old wants independence, with one hundred percent certainty wants independence. Um, They go to work for eleven or twelve dollars an hour, and they're still living in the house. They're not paying any rent. It becomes clear to them, or at least it seems to them, that the eleven or twelve dollars an hour is 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 enough for them to get by. Now, if they were to move out from the house, all of a sudden that eleven or twelve dollars an hour It just doesn't pay for all of the things that they're used to. But that is a – it's a giant leap, especially if you look at somebody that's 20 or 21, 22, 25 years old living with their parents. The idea of moving out of your parents' house, somebody could say, well, just move out of your parents' house. And this is what we look at with poverty as well. I'm not – I wouldn't say that anybody in poverty is lazy or that they're just taking advantage of the system. But as humans, we, we become comfortable in the environment that we understand. And some people would worry that when we make the environment more inviting to, to somebody or make it easier to stay in, that that's something that even though we may feel empathy for the poor, we may, we may, we're wanting to fix the problem, that it could be leading to increased problems over the long run. And I don't know if, if you agree with that or, or not. I, I disagree with the premise
1: that poverty in its current form in the United States is at all comfortable. If we're providing groceries and clothing and shelter, that's not making it comfortable. That's making it humane. And that says as much about us as it does about the people who are receiving that if if you and I, who are probably true the true pictures of comfort in this scenario, are not willing to give a little bit of what we have to make sure that others don't starve, That's not making poverty comfortable for them. It's you and I defining who we are, and you and I making sure that those people don't starve to death. And they have the same desires that you and I have. They're going to look at, the next model of Tesla that comes out and they're going to say, damn, that looks cool. I want one. <laughs> and they're going to look at shoes that don't have holes in them and were not bought at the secondhand store. And they're going to say, boy, I wish I had that. And they're going to, just like doing this, they're going to try to work to earn those things. Um, they're going to look at nicer food. They're going to look at broader food options. They're going to look at the freedom to choose which food they eat and when. And they're going to say, I want that. Um, the, the notion that we've made poverty comfortable is is not one that I accept
0: yeah and a, perhaps a better word would be uh, tolerable or familiar because by by no means is, is somebody in poverty sitting around uh, comfortable and having all of the things uh, that you know actually they want. I think you just
1: said the word that I love did you just say honorable
0: no uh, tolerable so,
1: that's great. Oh, tolerable, okay. Tolerable, but maybe honorable. Honorable Honorable is a great thought because I know um, two people at the moment who are in one stage of homelessness and or poverty or another. Um, I don't want to get into too many specifics because their identities I keep confidential. But two men who are licensed uh, within the unions of, of types of construction work. That's honorable. That's honorable work, but because of the nature of it, it's it's seasonal. It's seasonal, and it's frequently not paying as much as you would love. And um, because of other factors, they're also homeless. They're also on programs that provide them with food assistance. It's they're honorable, honorable people, and we need to treat them as such. Um, that's not making it comfortable. That's treating them with the respect they deserve.
0: Well, and that...
1: actually, another another aspect of that is. I forget the numbers, but it it it's higher than zero, and it shouldn't be the number of members of our military who receive food stamp assistance. What kind of crazy program is this that we're saying you may go fight and die for our country, but we're not going to pay you enough money to buy your groceries?
0: Well, they mo- most of the military is is relatively well compensated. There are so, there are some, and you know, I think that that goes into there. There are many many of our lead researchers at universities that are in the early ports of their career that are on food stamps that are working for extremely low wages while they are wrapping up their last year in a, a dissertation for their PhD. I mean, these are highly, highly capable people. Same with the military, same with a, a lot of these where some of our, some of our benefits go there. And it, what's important is some of those, some of those programs are not necessarily Uh, benefits to the people, but they are subsidies to the corporations that are taking advantage of labor that they don't have to pay that to.
1: Oh, I agree with you there. When you think about all the people who are employed by Walmart, for example, Walmart can pay them a pittance because they know we're going to pick up the tab on the far side. Now, the way to fix that problem is not by cutting the welfare programs that feed those employees. The way to fix that problem is by forcing Walmart to pay them a living wage
0: well well so the the problem there is that you can you can force somebody to pay a living wage but the reality is if if you're if the productivity falls below the wage that you're being paid what the result would be would be fewer and fewer people being employed by Walmart and Walmart finding different ways uh to to structure their their labor now I'm not saying that's good or bad I'm just I think Seattle was a, a relatively, a relatively good, uh, you know, real world example. They looked at a, a lot of uh, in the food service industry. A lot of a lot of people lost their jobs. Some people would say, well, they were those jobs were not very beneficial. But um, any any job for the person that's working the job is more beneficial than not having a job. But you know, there there's there are a uh- lot of nuances there.
1: That to an extent, in the short term. But in the long term, if we're creating a system that allows the major corporations to pay whatever tiny amount they so choose, then you're creating an entire class of people that are unable to, to do the very type of income growth over the long term that you're, that you're hoping for. There, you can't go to night school if you can't afford the tuition. And you can't go to night school if you have to work two jobs. It's simply impossible, and so if your job at the moment is a minimum wage job and you're hoping to work your way out of it, we need to change some of the structural systems to allow that to happen. Well, upward mobility requires a system. It requires a ladder to have rungs on it. <laughs> and right <laughs> now, the ladder's got no rungs.
0: Well, Matt, I appreciate. The time that you had, hopefully we can do this again. Maybe this can be a to-be-continued sometime in the future. I think that it's a great conversation. Um, I hope that people find it informational, and I also hope that it just opens up people's minds. Two people can disagree. Two people can have uh, completely different opinions, and that doesn't mean... And let me say
1: thank you from sp- the invitation. is really nice Thank you.
0: Yes, I appreciate it, Matt, and uh, talk to you soon.